Today we're continuing our study on Colossians called Established in Grace, and we're on teaching number 22, which is called A New Way of Living. It comes out of Colossians 3, 1 through 14, and in these verses, Paul talks about a new way to look at ourselves, a new way to look at God, a new way to look at others, and a new way to look at life. And each of these result in a new way of living. One of the things Paul was often criticized of was not caring about how people lived. He was accused of giving people a license to sin. He was accused of being light on sin. He was accused of telling people, oh, you can go sin all you want because the more you sin, you get more grace. I mean, just all of these attacks against Paul, all these accusations against Paul, and they were completely wrong in their attacks and completely wrong in their accusations. I remember it wasn't uh, too long ago, I was teaching in the early part of Galatians, and I had somebody in the class that I was teaching saying, hey, you never teach on morality. Well, I mean, obviously, they've never heard all the teachings that I've ever done. And I was in Galatians, and Paul only addresses morality in chapter 5 for just a couple verses. He addresses morality in Ephesians, starting in verse 17. He addresses morality here in Colossians and ethics and decision-making and how to live. But one of the accusations and one of the attacks that will come against us is, hey, you don't care about the decisions people make. You don't care whether people are moral or not. That accusation was lobbed at me within the last couple of months. And, uh, and it's just not true. Uh, I just teach scripture, and when the scripture talks about morality, I'll talk about it. And when it's talking about theology, I'll talk about theology. But when you look at Paul's letters, morality always comes from theology. Rarely does Paul talk about morality without first talking about theology, because morality flows from theology. A proper theology results in a life of morality. So Paul never mixes the two. Paul never mingles the two. He always establishes a good theological foundation for people. And then from that good, solid theological foundation, then he moves into a moral lifestyle. Typically, you know you're dealing with a legalist when they don't want you to establish a theological foundation for people. They just want you to talk about morality. And that tends to happen with people who teach grace. They're accused of, well, he just doesn't care about how people live. Well, I care that people are established in theology, and I care about the morality of people. But before morality, let's establish people in theology. And so that's what Paul did in Colossians chapters 1 and 2. He established them in the theology of the new covenant. He established them in the theology of who Christ is. He established them in the theology of what Christ had done for them. He established them in grace is what he did. And once they were established in grace, now he's moving on. How do you live this life now? What's this new way of living that grace produces? And so that's what I want us to look at today. I want us to look at this new way of living that Paul addresses in Colossians 3, 1 through 14. And he starts first with the motivation for a new way of living. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he says, Since you have been raised with Christ, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. This is talking about a new way to look at ourselves. It's a whole new way of of identifying who we are. 
And based upon the identity, our own identity and us being aware of our identity, it changes how we live. That becomes the motivation for a new life. So Paul says this in the first verse. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, and he's going back to Colossians 2.12. He's going back to theology here. He's wanting people to understand that you've been raised with Christ and all of your sins are completely forgiven. He talks about that in, in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You've been made alive with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. What's really neat, if you just want to jot down 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes a statement. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins. Which means because Christ has been raised from the dead, we're no longer in our sins. Now, why is that true? Because in the death of Jesus, he paid the sin debt in full. And the resurrection is proof that he's the Christ. His resurrection is proof that he's Messiah. And so we've now been raised with Christ. And the only way we can be raised with Christ, this resurrected life, this being alive with Christ, Christ is our life, the only way we can have this resurrected life is if all our sins are forgiven. We're no longer in our sins if we're believers, which means we're no longer under the sin debt. Our sin debt has been paid in full. Our sin debt has been completely paid. And now we're raised with Christ. If all of our sins aren't forgiven, then I can't be raised with Christ. I can't be made alive with Christ if all of our sins aren't forgiven. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just makes a great statement. If, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins. But because he's been raised from the dead, we're no longer in our sins. And the point he makes here in Colossians 3, 1, is that we've been raised with Christ. And because we've been raised with Christ, we're no longer in our sins, meaning our sin debt has been paid in full. And we're completely forgiven. There is no more seeking forgiveness. There's no asking for forgiveness. There's no begging for forgiveness. We have been raised with Christ. We are forgiven people. So this motivation, since you've been raised with Christ, for you died, when, when Christ died, we died, but then we were raised with him. So our sin debt was paid in full. When Christ died, we died, but when he arose from the grave, we arose from the grave with him. So you've been raised with Christ, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the life for a fish is the water. If we separate a fish from the water, we separate a fish from the source of life. And so if a fish has been separated from the water, the fish has to get back into the water for life to come. The fish in the water and the water in the fish. What water is to a fish... And what water is inside of a fish and what the fish is inside of the water, Christ is to us. Us in Christ, Christ in us. So Christ is our life. And when we came to faith in Christ, it's like the fish getting back into the water and the water getting back into the fish because mankind is born spiritually dead, right? We're born outside of a relationship with God. And the source of life is God himself. And so Jesus came to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into a relationship with God, which is what life is all about. 
we're all born in the identity of Adam, which we're born spiritually dead. But when we come to faith in Christ, we're placed into Christ, and that's where life is, eternal life. That's where forgiveness is and righteousness is. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. So here's the motivation that Paul's giving, starting in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, for a new way of living. He says, view yourself as somebody whose who's sin debt has been paid in full. View yourself as somebody who's been resurrected with Christ. View yourself as being in Christ and Christ in you. And Christ is in God and God is in you. You're identified with Christ. You're identified with God. You're identified with his resurrection. You're identified with his life. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. What an amazing statement. Paul's trying to motivate people based upon who they are in Christ and that one day Christ is going to return. And when Christ returns, we'll return with him. We'll appear in, with him. Paul talks about this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Says the dead in Christ will appear with Christ first, and then those who are still with Christ will be raised in the air. It's, it's the rapture, and then we will appear with Christ. And so, this eternal perspective on life, this new perspective on who we are and, and what life is all about. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, In Jesus is life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 6, 25, I am the bread of life. John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says this to Martha after Lazarus has passed away. They're going to get Jesus. They're very discouraged. They're down. They're mourning Mary and Martha, the death of Lazarus. And they're thinking, boy, if Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died because Jesus would have healed him prior to death. But Jesus purposely waited until he died so that he could prove that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ in raising Lazarus from the dead. And in the context, that would be a sign to the Jewish people that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So he purposely waited, and then he brought Lazarus up from the grave. And starting in verse 25 of John 11, Jesus said to Martha these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Even though they die physically, spiritually, we're alive with Christ, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And in verse 26, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So you and I, our life is in Christ. We believed in Christ. We placed our faith in Christ. We trusted in Christ. And now we're alive with Christ and we will never die. We'll live eternally with God, with Christ when he appears. We will live with him forever. We will marvel at this eternal life in Christ forever. Now, this new life, first of all, has a motivation, the motivation for living a, a new life. We just looked at that. And then is the concentration for this new way of living. Paul moves into Colossians after he writes, since you've been raised with Christ, he says, set your thoughts on things above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This idea of set, set your thoughts, set your minds. That's the idea of concentration. Establish your thoughts on things above. Establish your thoughts on the fact that you've been raised with Christ. Establish your thoughts on the fact you've been forgiven by Christ. Establish your thoughts, Paul is writing, that Christ is your life. Establish your thoughts that when Christ returns and when Christ appears, you will appear with him. So he's telling the believers to establish their thoughts, to concentrate on Christ, to concentrate on things above, not on earthly things. All right. Whatever we concentrate on will control us. Whatever we dwell on is what we will desire. Whatever we focus on is what will fill us. And so what Paul is encouraging the the believers in Corinth to do is to dwell on Christ and what he's done and who he is. And one day he's going to return to concentrate on who Christ is and what he's done. And one day he's going to return to concentrate on who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them and to dwell on the fact that they're forgiven and they've been raised with Christ. And so whatever we think about, whatever we dwell on will, will be what we desire, will be what controls us. So Paul is encouraging them to concentrate on Christ, to concentrate on who he is, on what he's done and who they are in him and who he is in them and that one day he's going to return and not to concentrate on earthly things. If we dwell on earthly things, we're going to desire earthly things. If we concentrate on earthly things, we're going to uh, be controlled by earthly things. If we focus on earthly things, then these earthly things are going to fill us and, and control our lives. So Paul is moving them to concentrating on eternal things, on Christ and his return and what he's done for them. And he moves from this motivation for a new way of living, this concentration for a new way of living, to thirdly, the elimination of the old way of living. And Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, this is out of the, out of the Berean literal Bible, which is literally how it is in the Greek language. Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. The NIV writes, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's not the correct translation of that verse. The correct translation is this, therefore put to death the members which are upon the earth. This word members here means the things that are are, are upon the earth, the, the parts of the things that are upon the earth that are no good. Everything on the earth isn't bad. Everything isn't terrible upon the earth, but there are parts, are members of the earth, are parts of the earth that are not good, that are not healthy that are destructive. And Paul begins to list these parts that are upon the earth. Therefore, put to death. That means don't let these things control you on earth. If you concentrate on these things, they will control you. So it says, rather than the concentration of these things, practice the elimination of these things. And it starts in our thoughts. Establish your thoughts. Establish your heart. What we think about is what we will desire. What we dwell on is what we desire. So he says, therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, because you've been seated with Christ, because you've been made alive with Christ, going back into the verses, because you've been completely forgiven by Christ, 
because Christ is your life and your life is now hidden with Christ in God and because Christ in now indwells you and because when Christ returns, you're going to return with him. When he appears, you're going to appear with him. Therefore, because of those reasons, put to death or don't allow these parts of the earth to be alive in your life. Put these things to death. Don't participate in these areas that are upon the earth or these parts that are upon the earth. And he lists those. Sexual immorality, impurities. The Berean literal says passion. And what that means is lust, this lust for more, this driven for more. Nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. Nothing wrong with wanting to be financially secure and to take care of our finances. Nothing wrong with those things. The book of Proverbs goes a lot into how to live successfully on on this earth. Great, great advice and counseling in Proverbs about how to live a, a successful life. So there's nothing wrong with living a successful life on earth and having ambitions and having desires and want to pursue Uh, the gifts and the talents that God's put within us. But there are parts of the earth that Paul lists here, sexual immorality, impurity, this, this lust, this driven, my whole life is wrapped up in what I can accomplish on earth and what I can achieve on earth and what I can get on earth. He moves into evil desires and covetousness, which is envy, jealousy, and idolatry, just the worship of something finding purpose and meaning in that something rather than our relationship with God. So Paul's encouraging the Colossians in the elimination of the old way of living. And before he moves into the elimination of the old way of living, he first talks about the motivation. And secondly, he talks about the concentration. Then he talks about the elimination and he moves on in this elimination of the old way of living, Colossians 3, 6 through 9. He says, because of these, which refers back to Colossians 3, 5, because of the sexual immorality on earth, because of the impurities and the, the lust that exists on earth, the evil desires, the covetousness that exists on earth and idolatry that exists on earth, the envy and the jealousy and all the things that exist on earth that really cause a lot of problems creates a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of heartache in the lives of people. Paul writes in verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, what's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the elimination of all sin upon the earth, the elimination of all sinners upon the earth. It's rooted in in Jewish theology. You can read about it in Psalm chapter 1, when the sin and the sinners are removed from the earth and will perish from the earth. And it talks about only the righteous will stand in the assembly of of God and and not fall under the wrath of God. And who are the righteous? The righteous are those who've come to faith in Christ. The righteous are those who've placed their trust in Christ. And we've been given the gift of righteousness. So those who've been given the gift of righteousness will not go through the wrath that's to come. That's really what most of the book of Romans is about. Paul sets it up and says, the wrath of God is coming. On the Gentile, chapter 1 of Romans. On the Jew, chapter 2 of Romans. On everybody, chapter 3. And then he moves in, but God has provided grace for everybody that all can be saved through faith in Jesus. And we are at peace with God through faith in Jesus, Romans 5, 1 through 2. And we're no longer under the wrath to come. 
But those who are under the wrath to come are those who've never come to faith in Christ. Their identity is still sinner. And the sinner that's on the earth and the sin that's on the earth will be removed in wrath. It's, it's the love of God when he totally cleanses the earth of all sin and sinners. Our identity in Christ, the believer's identity in Christ is that of saint. Holy one, forgiven one, righteous one. The saint, the saints will not go through wrath, but the sinners will go through wrath. And Jesus is talking about this in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish in what? Perish in wrath. Will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The word perish, that's what Jesus means. This wrath that's coming. When this wrath comes, people are going to perish. They're going to die in judgment. They're going to be wiped away. And that's what Psalm chapter 1 refers to. So because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Think about it this way. Think about a a family that lives in a drug-infested community. And think about a mom who watches her children have to go into this drug-infested community every day to walk to school. And her, her great fear is, will my son, will my daughter return home from school today? What kind of negative influence will this drug-infested community have on my son or my daughter? I want my son to be successful. I want my daughter to be successful. I don't want them to get caught up in the drug community which we live. Her great desire, the father's great desire, is I wish somebody would come in and clean up this community. I wish they'd put some playgrounds in this community. I wish they'd make this community safe. I wish it would be so that, that when my children go outside in this community, they don't have to fear being shot. They don't have to fear being persuaded to use drugs and to drink alcohol and to go down a path that's negative and can be very destructive for them. What if somebody came into that community and cleansed it? What if somebody came into that community and cleaned it up? What if somebody came in and literally put some playgrounds in there? created some programs in that community, got rid of all the drug dealers out of the community. And it was just a complete place of safety and security. That would delight the mother. That would delight the father because then their joy would be, boy, my son, my daughter can enjoy this community now. They can go outside and play safely. They can go outside and play securely. They can pursue their dreams and their gifts and their talents that they have and without having to live in fear. Well, see, that's what God is ultimately working toward. And we find that in Revelation 21, Revelation 22, that this new earth is coming where there's no more crying. There's no more hurt. There's no more pain. There's no more death. There's no more destruction. There's no more heartache. And prior to the creation of the new earth, he's going to bring elimination to the old way things are done on this earth. He's not going to create a brand new earth as far as physically but he's talking about the things that happen on the earth. It's going to be new. What's going on is going to be new. There's not going to be any sin or any sinners on the new earth. We will have new bodies that match our new identity and match the spirit of Christ in us. Just like Christ got a new body when he resurrected, we get new physical bodies to live on the new earth. And there'll be no more pain and no more heartache and no more destruction. So the wrath of God is not God's anger towards sinners. It's God's love for the saints. That's how I communicate the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his love to establish an earth that is free from pain and hurt and heartache and destruction and death. And so that we can enjoy life on this earth. We don't have to live in fear. 
of any crime. We don't have to live in fear of any diseases. We won't have to wear a mask if there's a virus because there won't be a virus, right, on the new earth. So the wrath of God is when he cleanses the earth of all sin and sinners and everything that causes problems in preparation for the new earth. It's his love. And he doesn't want anybody to go through his wrath. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's not, God does not delight in anybody perishing in judgment, perishing in wrath. When Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. What we see in that verse, it's the love of God that no one perishes. God does not delight in anyone being wiped away in judgment. He wants everyone to live on the new earth. That's why he's slow in keeping his promise, Peter says. That's why he delays his return. Because the moment he returns, then the opportunity for people to come to faith in him will will no longer exist. And you may have people in your family who, man, I I don't want Jesus to come today because my sister doesn't know the Lord. My, My dad doesn't know the Lord. My brother doesn't know the Lord. My neighbor doesn't know the Lord. Yeah, I'd love to see Jesus, but man, I'm really kind of glad he's delaying because I have people that I love who don't know the Lord. But one day he is going to come, and Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Prior to the establishment of the new, the new earth, Peter writes about it, the new earth, the home of righteousness, the home where every, everybody's loved and everything's right, and there's no hurt and pain and, and heartache upon the earth. I think a lot of times God gets a bad rap when it comes to his wrath. People see the wrath of God as the anger of God towards sinners. What we find in Scripture is God loves sinners. And he's provided a way to escape the wrath to come, which is through faith in Jesus. All right. So Paul is saying, put to death these things that are parts of the earth that don't match who you are. They don't match your identity. They don't match what God has done for you in Christ and who you are in Christ. Because these things that Paul is saying, put these things to death, the wrath of God is coming. It's going to remove all these things from the earth. And Paul writes to the Colossian believers, starting in Colossians 3, 7, you used to walk in these ways and in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, that's revenge, malice, you did this to me, I'll do that to you. Slander, that's being critical of one another, putting each other down, talking about each other. Rid yourselves of of anger toward one another, rage toward one another, malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. That's the elimination of the old way of living. All right. Based upon the motivation, based upon the concentration, now this elimination of the old way of living. Now let's look at the transformation for a new way of living. The transformation comes out of Colossians 3.10, starting with verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge. The knowledge there is the truth about who God is. Our minds are being renewed in the truth about who God is. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. So a believer is experiencing transformation in life 
because their mind about who God is is experiencing transformation. That who we thought God was isn't who he is. Who these believers in Colossae thought he was, this God who was angry and mad and wanted to judge them in their sins and, and wanted to punish them, that was their concept of God, these Colossian people, before they came to faith in Christ and began to see that God, no, for God so loved the world. God is a God of mercy and kindness and a God of gentleness and patience and compassion. He's a God of forgiveness and a God of grace that he steps out of heaven to earth and he clothes himself in humanity and he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sins. This would have blown the minds of the Colossian people. This kind of God that steps out of heaven to earth and lovingly goes to the cross and pays the penalty for the sin of, of sinners. In their mind, God's ready to pounce on sinners. God's ready to judge them. God's mad and angry and wants to get them. And some people's mind still needs to be renewed because in their mind, they will think, you know, I talked to a guy one time. It's heartbreaking. I was counseling him, and he, he said, Brad, he said, you know, one of the, the things I have to live with every single day is, is my, my wife and my children were killed in a car accident. And I know why they were killed in a car accident. God is punishing me for my sins. God punished me for my sins in killing my wife and my children in a car accident. See, that person's believing a lie about who God is. That person's mind needs to be renewed, needs the transformation that, no, God, God didn't kill your children and God didn't kill your wife for your sins. God killed himself for your sins. He paid the sin debt for your sins. God loves you. And I, and I told him, I don't know why these things on earth happen. And I know they won't happen on the new earth. But here's one thing I know about God. And I tried to encourage him. God loves you so much. And God didn't punish you by taking your wife and by taking your children. And the reason he said that to me was he had gotten a phone call in the counseling office. Somebody had called him while we were talking, and his next wife, the child was stillborn. The child was born dead. So he got that news in my office. And he says, wow, God's, God, God's really getting me back for what I did. Not only did my first wife die in a car accident, not only did my children die, but now my wife just, and, and he, he couldn't be there because he was in, um, he was in an addiction recovery center and he found out that his, his child was, was still born, born dead. And um, he was convinced God was punishing him. Our minds need to be renewed. Our minds need to be transformed. Look, we put on the new self. How do we put on the new self? By having our minds renewed in the knowledge that's the truth about who God is. He is loving. He is kind. He is good. He's full of mercy and compassion. He is the prodigal son's father. If we want to know what God is like, go to Luke 15 and read Luke. I think it starts at verse 11 and go to, I think it's verse 31. And Jesus is painting a portrait of the father because the minds of the religious community had so warped the minds of people about who God was that in their minds, God was angry and mean. It's reflected in the older brother who was angry and mean. The reason so many of the Pharisees were angry and mean was because they thought God was angry and mean. And so Jesus tells this story to 
bring truth to the minds of people that God is a God who runs to us in our sins. God is a God who lavishes love upon us in our sins. God is a God who doesn't get frustrated with us in our sins, but he's full of forgiveness. He's not full of anger. He's full of acceptance. He's not full of condemnation. He's full of compassion. He's not full of guilt. Look what you did. He's full of grace. Look what I'm going to do for you, no matter what you did. I mean, this renewing of the mind leads to this transformation in our lives about the character of God. So Paul writes, and, and, and you're putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the, in, in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. All right. And then he moves into the inspiration for a new way of living. So he's given the motivation for a new way of living. He's given the concentration for a new way of living. He's given the elimination of the old way of living. He's given the transformation of the new way of living. And now he's moving into the inspiration for a new way of living. And he's talking about a new way of looking at God, a new way of looking at others, a new way of looking at life, a new way of looking at ourselves, which results in this new way of living. Look what he says here about this new way of looking at others. He says here, or within the body of Christ, within the family of God, within this family of grace, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. Circumcised would be the Jews, uncircumcised would be the Gentiles. That's how they would look at each other during this time. Well, he's a Jew, she's a Jew, he's a Gentile, she's a Gentile. We can't relate to one another because our race divides us. We're divided by our race. And then he moves on to removing these racial divisions, Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, to removing social divisions. And he does that, that here within the family of grace, here within the family of God, there's no Jew or Gentile, no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian. That's an uncivilized, uneducated. Oh, look, that's, look, look at them. They're uneducated. They're uncivilized. We can't relate to them. We can't relate to people who live in that neighborhood. That, that's not the kind of people we associate with. And Paul is saying with, within the body of Christ, it doesn't matter what neighborhood you're from. doesn't matter what race that you are. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is Christ, that we all have Christ in common. He goes on the right. Here there is, in the body of Christ, in the family of grace, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. Scythians were barbarians multiplied. Scythians were cruel barbarians, murderous barbarians, filthy, dirty barbarians. Didn't care about anybody. I mean, they would take somebody's life in a moment and without any conscience about it. And, and you know what's amazing? What I'm seeing here is, is how far-reaching the grace of God is. I mean, these people are saved. This is a list of people who've come to faith in Jesus. This is a list of people who've received the grace of God. This is a list of people who've heard the good news about Jesus. They've heard the love of God displayed in Jesus, who loves sinners, and who goes to the cross for sinners. And one day, the Scythian, somebody shares Jesus with the Scythian. And he comes to faith in Christ, or she comes to faith in Christ. He or she hears the good news about Jesus. The barbarian hears the good news about Jesus. The Gentile hears the good news. The Jew hears the good news. And they come to faith in Christ. 
And then Paul talks about within the body of Christ, there's no slave or free. Again, social divisions. Back during this time, there were around 5 million slaves that Rome had. You know, Rome was conquering the world, and wherever they conquered, those people would become slaves. Meaning, whatever gift, talent, or ability they had, they would use that gift, talent, or ability within the Roman economy. So if they were good at being a baker, they would be a baker. If they were good at cooking, they would be a chef. If they were good at making clothes, or they would be a tailor. And that's why Peter says, I think it's in, in 1 Peter, he talks about that each one should use the gift God had, has given them to share grace with people. He's saying within this Roman culture, and you've been given a gift and you're using your gift within this Roman culture. He said, I want you to be the best baker you can be. And I want you to, I want those, the Romans to see the grace of God in you as you be, you're being the best baker you can be. You're being the best tailor that you can be. And you're building relationships with these Romans as a slave within their economy. You're making money for the Romans with your gift, with your talent, with your ability. But in doing so, that's your way of connecting grace to them. That's your way of building a relationship with them. That's your way of giving them the hope that's in Christ. So that when anybody asks, what's the hope that you have? Why do you have so much hope? What's so different about you? It's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've worked and you've done a wonderful job at using your talent. So the slave and the, and the free. So within the Roman culture, there were free people who weren't slaves to the Roman government who were coming to faith in Christ. There were slaves who were coming to faith in Christ. There were Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. There were Jews coming to faith in Christ. The circumcised and uncircumcised, the barbarian and the Scythian were all coming to faith in Christ. They were responding to the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that God freely gave us in him. Somebody was sharing the good news of grace with these people. And they were responding. And and suddenly they find themselves, all these different people find themselves in the exact same family, worshiping the exact same God, having experienced the exact same grace because of Jesus. And Paul's saying, listen, I know you've been trained to focus on your racial divisions. I know you've been trained to to focus on your social divisions. But in Christ, there's no divisions. And he goes on to say, because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Christ lives now in the Gentile. Christ lives in the Jew. Christ lives in the barbarian that's come to faith in Christ. Christ lives in the Scythian that's come to faith in Christ. Christ lives in the slave. Christ lives in the free one. And Christ is all. Remember when Jesus said, whatever you do to another, you've done to me. So he's saying, listen, how how you treat the Scythian is is how, how you're treating me because I'm in him. How you treat the Gentile is how you're treating me because I'm in the Gentile. How you treat the Jew is how you treat me because I live in the believing Jew. How you treat the slave is how you're treating me because I live in the slave. And how you treat the free person is how you treat me because I live in the free. And so Paul is bringing people together. Everybody had a need for grace. And grace is for everybody. And we see all different kinds of people responding to the good news of Jesus. We're looking at this inspiration for a new way of living. Paul goes on the right in Colossians three, twelve. Therefore, as God's chosen people, God hasn't chosen who's going to be saved. 
God has chosen the church. The church has been chosen. Anybody can be a part of his family. God's chosen people of the church. Sometimes we think, well, the Jews are God's chosen people. Well, God chose that through the Jewish people that the Messiah would come. But the church is God's chosen people too. And now God's taken people out of every nation and every race and every social class, and he's bringing them together within the body of Christ. God still has a plan for Israel. He's not done for Israel, with Israel, and he's going to fulfill that plan for Israel in the future. But until that time comes, we live in something called the mystery age. We've talked about this in the study. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 3. He talks about the mystery of Christ in you in, in Colossians 1, this mystery age that we're living in, the church, God's chosen people, this church that anybody can be a part of, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, grace is for everybody, and everybody needs grace. Um, nobody's eliminated from the grace of, of the Lord Jesus because of sin. Our sin actually is why we need grace. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, so many different people, so many different social classes, so many uh, racial classes are now coming together in Christ. And he's saying, here's how to live. Here's how to live. View yourself as God's chosen people. View yourself as holy and dearly loved by God. See, this is this new way of seeing one another. This is this new way of seeing God. This is this new way of seeing ourselves. This is this new way of seeing life, which results in this whole complete new way of living. So people who accused Paul of not caring how people lived, that was absurd. That was ridiculous. Paul cared about how people lived, but how they lived was rooted in theology. All right? So it says, as God's chosen people, as people who are wholly loved by God with absolute pure love, God's, God has no hint of selfishness in him. God's love for us is pure. Dearly loved, that, that's love. He loves us with affection. He loves us with kindness. He loves us with tenderness. He loves us with mercy. He loves us with compassion. Paul's trying to renew their mind about their creator in verse 12 of chapter 3 of Colossians. This God that, that, that you've come to know through Jesus, he's pure, he's clean. He would never do anything to hurt you. He wouldn't cause a car accident so that your wife would die and so that your children would die and cause a child to be born stillbirth because he's going to punish them for your sins. And in punishing them for your sins, he's going to punish you as well. No, that's not the God that we know. That's, that, that's a different, that's a satanic God. That's a lie. The God that we're in relationship with is pure and clean and holy. And he's in a love relationship with us. And we're in a love relationship with him, holy and dearly loved. And then look what he says, clothe yourselves in the same love that God loves you with. So whatever we believe about God is how we will behave in life. However we think God treats us is how we ultimately will treat another person. And so if I want to change how I treat others, I've got to change how I believe God treats me. If I'm going to get rid of anger and I'm going to get rid of rage and I'm going to get rid of slander and I'm going to get rid of bitterness, and, and the list that Paul gave in the earlier verse, if I'm going to get rid of, of malice, the way I take off the old and put on the new is a transformation of the mind. Our minds are transformed when we begin to see ourselves based upon who we are in Christ. 
We begin to see life differently. We begin to see God differently. We begin to see others differently. Our minds are being renewed. And he says here in verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved by God, he's full of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience with you. He says, now clothe yourselves with that love toward one another. Be compassionate to others. Be kind to others. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Hey, free man, I want you to be compassionate to the slave that you oversee. Hey, Jew, I want you to be humble to the Gentile. Gentile, I want you to be patient with the Jew. I mean, he's trying to bring this odd collection of people together. They've come together in Christ theologically, and now he's trying to bring them relationally together. Unity among them, even though there's so many differences in their social classes and in their racial classes. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Paul says, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So he's, he's seeking to bring unity between the barbarian and the Jew. Can you imagine the barbarian, the Scythian, and the slave or the free? I mean, this, this odd group of people, how in the world are they going to come together with, without divisions? And Paul says, this is how it's going to be. Love each other the way God loves you. Be compassionate to one another the way God is for you, kind and humble to one another. And it's the same for us. How am I going to have unity in my family? How am I going to build healthy relationships with people in my family and my church? Compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience from God through me to them. Love. So we have a new way of living produced by a new way of looking at God, a new way of looking at ourselves, a new way of looking at others, a new way of looking at life. And if you notice, going back real quick to verse 13, it says, bear with each other and forgive one another just as the Lord forgave you. That's why understanding we're completely forgiven is so important. If I think I'm still having to get forgiveness from God, then I'm going to demand that people get forgiveness from me. I had a guy one time, he was sitting in my office. And whenever his children disobeyed, did something wrong, he would end fellowship with them because in his mind, our sins cause us to be out of fellowship with God. And since our sins cause us to be out of fellowship with God, well, then my children's sins will cause them to be out of fellowship with me. And his theology was this, in order for me to be back into fellowship with God, I've got to go to God. I've got to ask for forgiveness. That sin has to be erased. Now I'm back in fellowship with God. He said, so that's what I would do with my children. I wouldn't be in any fellowship with them when they disobeyed me, and I would wait till they came to me, apologize, ask for my forgiveness, and then the fellowship would be restored. When I began talking to him about the fullness of what Christ did for him, that you can't be out of fellowship with God because all your sins are forgiven. They're nailed to the cross. You've been raised with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. Uh, You're not in your sins anymore. The debt has been paid in full. You can't be out of fellowship with God. That's an impossibility. 
It was life-changing for him. This old way of thinking began to fade away with this new, with the new covenant. He began to see himself in a very different way. He began to see himself as loved by God and forgiven by God, which translated over to how he saw his children. Whenever they sinned, he didn't wait for them to come to him before he forgave them. He forgave them immediately before they ever came. And he sat his children down one day. He said, Brad, I went home after you taught me this, and it really was just life-changing for me. And I sat my children down, and I told them I was sorry for how I treated them for so long. So here's what we see with that. Correct theology produces a healthy family. Healthy theology produces a healthy family. Unhealthy theology will produce an unhealthy family. Not that every family is going to be perfect. And not that every, healthy, every family is healthy, even though maybe the dad and the mom have a healthy theology. It's, it's, it can get messy at times. But we want to relate to, to one another in a healthy way. So we have a new way of living produced by a new way of looking at God, produced by a new way of looking at ourselves, produced by a new way of looking at others, and produced by a new way of looking at life. We have a new way of thinking about each of these as, as well. So I hope this gives us some insight into Paul, that he did care about how people lived. And morality was rooted in theology. A healthy lifestyle is rooted in a healthy view of God and a healthy view of ourselves and others. And, and so um, I hope this was helpful to understand in this portion of Colossians. So thanks so much, you guys, for being a part of this Bible study. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, Click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.